0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Louise Han, and I'm joined today by Eve Ng to discuss her new book, Council Culture, which has just come out with Paul Grave. Eve is an associate professor and the graduate director in the School of Media Arts and Studies and a core faculty member in the Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies Program at Ohio University. She has a PhD in Communication from the University of Massachusetts, and in another academic life, and a PhD in linguistics from the University of Buffalo. Her interdisciplinary scholarship examines LGBTQ media, digital media cultures, and constructions of national identity, and has been published in media studies, gender studies, and critical development studies journals. Council Culture, A Critical Analysis, is her first book. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Eve, and I look forward to discussing your work in detail today. Thanks for having me. Great. So I was interested in interviewing about this book um, as it kind of refuses to become sort of embroiled in the debates surrounding free speech and and cancel culture that are kind of um, ignited on quite a regular basis on Twitter and in the mainstream media um, and even to some extent in contemporary scholarship. So, you know, instead it analyzes the different forms that um, canceling can take across various regional and subcultural contexts, um, as well as the ways in which the imperative to, you know, quote unquote, cancel different kinds of people has um, developed out of several kind of genealogical threads. Um, So you take quite a diverse range of um, kind of cancellations as your case studies and look at how some cancel practices are rooted in, um, so black digital practices and black oral studies, uh, black oral traditions um and something which i had sort of all of that was something i I didn't have like that much awareness of um and i think it's often quite obscured um by mainstream commentary intent on sort of demonizing cancel culture as this um kind of pathology of you know quote unquote social justice warriors um so generally speaking i found that these kind of analytical threads help to elucidate some of the ways in which um differing social hierarchies and power dynamics have shaped what has come to be known as cancel culture, um, sort of as polysemous as that phrase is. Um, In fact, one of the kind of common trends within cancel culture discourse is that its critics often assume kind of a shared and fixed definition of the phenomenon, um, even though its origins are kind of multivalent and complex. And this book, I thought, gives um, kind of a fresh framework uh, with which to sort of more deftly handle handle, um, cancel culture's very. Various meanings. Um, so, given your wide range of case studies and sort of resistance to evaluating the implications of cancel culture on free speech, I'm wondering how you came to write the book and where your book fits into broader scholarship on cancel culture as a phenomenon.
1: Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I had been interested in digital cultures um, for a long time as a media scholar. Uh, My initial entry point was fan cultures and then later also in terms of digital activism. Um, I wrote a short article on cancel culture in 2019 um, called No Grand Pronouncements Here, Reflections on Cancel Culture and Digital Media Participation. Um, It was published in Television and New Media. And within a few months, (laughs) I started noticing not only that this was getting cited, like a lot more than my other work, but people around the world were contacting me, including, you know, college students, but also high school students who were emailing and saying, can I have a copy of this article, but also can I interview you for my project about cancel culture? So it struck me that I was actually working on another book project at the time, but I was on sabbatical. So it just seemed to me like a timely moment to, to, to write a book length work on cancel culture from the perspective that you've already very nicely summarized from this kind of critical media studies perspective that isn't asking, is it good or bad? What is it doing to free speech? And as you say, it wasn't a criticism of social justice warriors or work culture. It was really looking at this as um, a phenomenon um, or really actually a set of phenomena that Um, tells us a lot of interesting things about, you know, media, society, and power. Um, And I say this in the book, I say it can't cover everything. Um, What it covers reflects partly my interests. So it looks at fan and celebrity cultures, it looks at digital activism, um, and it also looks at political discourse and nationalism. So all of those are topics in the
0: yeah, it's this um, the sort of diversity of topics is something that I'd like to kind of hone in on a little bit now. I think so. You know, one of the major kind of I don't know, corollaries of the cancellation phenomenon that I've kind of noticed is this um, like emergence of disputes over the meaning of cancel culture online and in mainstream media, with some kind of questioning whether it exists at all. Um, so while in some ways your book kind of works to bring together the various definitions of cancel culture itself. Um, So obviously we'll be addressing this question sort of throughout the episode. Um, Would it be possible to provide just a basic or preliminary definition of cancel culture for listeners who may not be over familiar with the term, although admittedly, (laughs) it's quite difficult to escape (laughs) at the moment.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, for me, I thought it was um, analytically important to pull apart the idea of cancel culture and distinguish different components. So You've already used these terms, um, cancel practices um, and cancelling. So I call cancel practices, or we could just call it cancelling. Those are the things that people do, right? They can be media-centered actions like, you know, posting a hashtag that says so-and-so is cancelled or the "Mm, so-and-so is over party. Um, You can unfollow someone on social media, Downvote, you know, someone's um, movie or TV show. Those kinds of actions are cancel practices. Um there's also all sorts of other ways to withdraw public support, um, not buying a product, um, not listening to the music or watching the show of someone who's cancelled. Um and also uh companies or institutions can engage in cancel practices. So the older sense of cancel, like a television show being cancelled, if a network cancels a show because you know the star or someone like you know Roseanne Barr is cancelled in the cancel culture sense, that's also a kind of cancel practice. Um, and criticisms about cancel culture typically are referring to these cancel practices. Um, but since I'm looking at cancel culture from this Know, analytical perspective. I'm also interested in what I call cancel discourses, um, and this is what people are saying about cancel practices, or you know, like a whole cancel event. Um, and looking at these discourses also gives us sort of insights into the kind of power dynamics that are involved in, like who is being canceled, what are the cancel practices involved. And what are people saying about those um, practices and and outcomes? So, <clears throat> in short, when I talk about cancel culture in the book, it means both cancel practices and cancel discourses. Oh, and then one more term: cancel targets. That just means like the individual or the brand or the you know TV show that's being targeted for canceling.
0: Okay, great. That was uh, really concise and helpful, I'm sure. Um, so let's get into some of the chapter, the chapter details now. Um, so in chapter two, you address how cancel practices um, occur within fan communities and across kind of popular media, starting with analysis of earlier meanings of cancellation, which involve kind of popular television shows being taken off the air. Um, uh, I was just wondering if you could explain or or expand on the the link between earlier forms of cancellation and how social media served to shape the cancel practices that we're familiar with today.
1: Yeah. I actually found this section of the book really interesting to research. I myself wasn't quite aware of the evolution of the term and the practices and how they kind of converge into what we now understand to be cancel practices, um, online Um, so I think one place to start is um, in the domain of um, popular music and television in a pre-social media era so um, the the first use of cancel to refer to a person apparently was this song called your love is cancelled by the band Chic Um, and the singer is referring to a girlfriend. Um, The screenwriter for the film, New Jack City, starring Wesley Snipes, was listening to that song when he wrote the screenplay, and he had Wesley Snipes' character dump his girlfriend saying, cancel that bitch, um, charmingly. That made that kind of use of cancel popular more popular within um, mainly rap music. Um, And then there's just this sort of chain of development through popular music and television. It takes us to 2014 to the reality show um, Love and Hip Hop, New York. Um, And in a particular episode, one of the, not characters, I guess one of the stars of the show breaks up with his girlfriend by saying, you're cancelled. And then that because that was in an era where there was Twitter, right? And and so I talk about Black Twitter and the sort of um, the space that that gave um, its users to kind of interact with each other in this playful, often really playful way. And so the first, you know, the first wave of those kind of your canceled tweets were actually pretty playful, like just people coming up with really ridiculous things for being canceled, like you're canceled because you don't like kool-aid right and um so you have that thread but of course at the same time twitter was already and other social media were um spaces for digital activism so hashtags were already being used and this is you know before me too before black lives matter there were already hashtags um particularly on black twitter you know addressing um uh Racism addressing mm, sexual assault. Um, And so what happened was that Twitter started mm, introducing trending topics and certain hashtags that used to be just, you know, in their own subgroups like Black Twitter or, you know, LGBTQ users, like those started popping up for everyone who was on Twitter at the time. Um, And so that kind of sort of convergence of Twitter's algorithms, popular culture, popular media, um, introducing the language of cancelling in this way, like cancelling people, not just shows, um, and the activism around particular issues for which people later would be cancelled, right, around Me Too, around Black Lives Matter, um, kind of brought those together, brought this the language of cancelling, the practices of social media cancelling and um, digital activism. Um, And then also, you know, another thread which you also, I think, mentioned in the introduction were um, black communicative practices that, again, predated social media um, that had to do with this kind of verbal play. Um, And so the whole, like, I'm going to try and think of one more outrageous thing that I'm saying you're canceled for um, is tied to things like dissing right like the sort of like your mom is so fat that blah 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 right and I'm going to say something even more outrageous that kind of play um so that that was an element as well um one thing that people and and I want to also say I'm not black and I'm drawing a lot on the work of scholars on um black media studies like Andre Brock, uh, Sarah Furini, Sarah Jackson, Meredith Clark. Um, One thing that has been pointed out is that once cancelling and this sort of related practice of calling out, which had also initially had this kind of mix of humour and criticism, once those became more widespread, like spreading beyond black Twitter, they generally lost the sort of humorous part of it. Like then it became just like, If you're called out, like, it's something serious. If you're cancelled, we're not laughing at it. Like, you know, people are not happy.
0: Yeah, I found that really interesting, the kind of that shift from the kind of humorous, ironic sense to sort of losing it a little bit, yeah. Um, So later in this kind of this chapter, you kind of explore um, fandom and, and cancellations, uh, for three primary case studies, so those include um, cancellation of Stephen Colbert for sort of an unsavory tweet um, of the influencer James Charles for kind of both uh, an interpersonal drama and sexual harassment charges, and then of the television show The One Hundred for killing off um, a queer character. So, given kind of the ubiquity of of celebrity feuds and and fan cancellations. I'm just wondering why you chose these case studies um, in particular and in what ways they illustrate kind of different motivations, political imperatives and sort of power dynamics within sort of the, the cancel culture phenomenon. Yeah,
1: so I mean, one thing is, you know, one criticism that people sometimes make of cancel culture is that it doesn't work right? People say, look at so-and-so, like they've been canceled so many times and they just keep returning. Um, and so part of, you know, the chapter, it does illustrate that, like with James Charles. Um, but another thing that is interesting is that if you look in detail at the different kinds of celebrity and fandom cancelings, they're not all the same. Like what spurs a particular canceling for someone like James Charles is not the same as for the um, Cancel Colbert uh, campaign that Sui Park started or the cancellation or the canceling of the, the 100 um, and it's showrunner And then finally, the the kinds of data that we can look at as uh, we know that social media is really important now for the prominence of um, certainly social media influencers because they build their entire sort of brand and um, 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 profits from particular platforms. But even for shows um, or movies that are, you know, from that are on legacy platforms like network television, The 100 um, was a show on the US network, The CW, social media engagement is a huge part of that. And so what we can look at is what happens when fans who are super savvy um, withdraw their support? Like what happens? Is it effective? Can they really sort of bring down a show by saying we're not going to support you anymore? Or what happens to someone like James Charles when people are like not following you anymore, not buying your products anymore?
0: Yeah, so your next chapter kind of would return a bit to this of or- Black cultural practices here. Um, so yeah, this this um, homes in on the links between cancel culture and, and the Black cultural practice offering up the kind of quite an elucidatory, I think, analysis of how Twitter operates as a space for Black community and political formation. So um, could you start by giving just a, a brief overview of what you mean by digital activism and how so-called Black Twitter fits into its kind of broader genealogy?
1: Yes. so. I think people, you know, if we think of like traditional offline activism, there's a cause, people get together, they do stuff like go to demonstrations, write letters of um, protest to elected officials, um, kind of make make their cause known and often it involves gathering in groups. So one of the early sets of debates about digital activism was, A, is it effective um, when it's only happening online? And B, what does it say about um, activists who go to demonstrations physically versus those who just click something? And so, you know, people have talked about slacktivism or clicktivism and saying it doesn't work, right? But I think that debate has has subsided a lot because we've seen we've seen me too we've seen black lives matter which did start online and that there is this kind of confluence of both online and offline um, practices and outcomes so I think the sort of earlier misunderstanding that digital activism was only sort of easy stuff online is no longer sort of circulating. Um, But that said, it is, you know, a lot of it is still happening on social media. It involves things like hashtags, um, but the hashtags allow a kind of organizing, right? So it's not, you know, 10,000 people gathering in Tahrir Square, but it's thousands or more people tweeting the same hashtag um, or retweeting. Um, and so this is, you know, this A is organized and B does have particular kinds of outcomes. Um, and cancel culture or sort of, you know, more specifically, canceling practices fall under this kind of definition of digital activism, right? That if it's around a particular um, reason, like exposing someone's sexual misconduct or racially problematic, you know, expression or behaviors, then that's something that in the past without digital media, we would have also said we should do.
0: Yeah. So you may have already touched on this um, a little bit, but one of the kind of the trends you identify within the realm of Black Twitter involves this practice of calling out. Um, So could you just Um, be kind of explained for the audience what this means um, and how it lays the groundwork for council practices
1: yeah so um, I did I think mention earlier that calling out was part of this set of black community practices um, an in-group thing where the the goal is not to sort of cast someone out from the group but to you know take them to task for something like if you call someone out for a behaving poorly, you know, either to you or to, you see them, you observe them doing something else. Um, You're saying, hey, I saw that (laughs) and that's not okay. And maybe sort of make a joke of it. Um, That kind of calling out developed into what we now understand as calling out, which is, like I said, not as playful. But again, the goal of calling out is not to cast someone out, but just to say, you know, this is not okay. We want you to, you know, respond, maybe apologize and kind of acknowledge the harm that you've done. Um, so some people, you know, like Andre Brock, Meredith Clark have argued that we can see canceling having developed from calling out because it's sort of one step further in terms of the severity of outcome for the canceled target Because cancelling isn't just saying, hey, you've done something wrong. It's saying, and we don't, we're not going to support you anymore. We don't want to engage with you anymore. Um, So those are, that's sort of a key distinction. And it's something that activists have, and I'm talking about progressive, you know, left-wing activists have debated, right? Which is to say, "Mm, maybe we shouldn't be cancelling, maybe we should be you know, more calling out or sort of engaging what people have t- talked about as trans- uh, transformative justice, um, which involves, if <clears throat> anything, calling in, like saying that we want you to stay as part of our group, but we also want you to acknowledge the harm.
0: Yeah, those are really interesting kind of debates on the on the left as well. I think, particularly because the people often sort of aren't on the same page about what cancel culture even is. So this book kind of helps, I think, to kind of provide some kind of a framework for people to argue um, about that. So um, in the final part of this chapter that we're currently discussing, you kind of look at the cancelling of of two high profile figures accused of sexual harassment. So that's um, James Franco and Louis C.K., Um, Could you explain why you chose to examine these two men and what their cases illustrate about the nature of cancel culture and its long term effects?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, both of them experienced cancelling in the wake of the Me Too movement. Um, And the most prominent figure at the beginning of that movement was Harvey Weinstein, the uh, movie producer I think what is an interesting contrast is with Weinstein, the sheer number of women who accused him of um, very serious sexual misconduct, including, you know, rape, coerced sex, um, you know, abusing his position of power. And I think there was also, (laughs) this isn't really talked about, but there was sort of a aesthetic, um, reason for it as well. People looked at him and he was like old and people were sort of disgusted, right, by the thought of him with these vulnerable young women. But anyway, for all these reasons, with Weinstein people, there wasn't this kind of discourse that this is like feminist overreach, right? This is social justice warriors gone wrong. Um, But after Weinstein, of course, we saw a number of first prominent men and then it just sort of trickled down to a much broader number of people in all sorts of um, domains, not just the entertainment industry, um, uh, you know, being being um, called out or cancelled around these issues. So with both Frank, James Franco and C.K. Uh, Lewis C.K., they, they were both accused of sexual misconduct, but I think for most people it wasn't nearly as, you know, terrible or disgusting as it was for certain other people, like, you know, compared to someone else like, you know, R. Kelly. Um, So if you look at what happened to them, right at the beginning, both of them suffered pretty serious consequences um, to their careers, as well as having um, a lot of negative, negative discourse about them on on mainstream uh, media reports and to some extent on social media. Um, So, you know, professionally you have Louis C.K. He had this movie that he had written, directed, starred in, um, what's it called, I Love You Daddy, not coincidentally about, you know, an older man that gets together with a teenager that was meant to, be released never got released um, James Franco you know he finished the third season of the Deuce, the HBO series he was on um, and then really just didn't work after that um, although Google I just Googled him recently Google tells me he has like one I think indie film in post-production but you know compared to the profile he had before it's you know he he clearly has paid a professional price um, but I went to various, um, online sites to look at what the comments were about these two men. Um, and so I went to both the, um, the original New York times article about Franco, as well as the times tweet about it. Um, I looked at video reports about both cases on YouTube that had the most, um, views And then I looked at the top-ranked comments. um, And somewhat to my surprise, like even at the beginning, like right at the beginning when they were facing their worst kinds of um, the the greatest amount of criticism, public criticism, a lot of people were not convinced, right? There were a lot of posts about um, both Franco and CK saying, well, they got consent, right? CK said, can I show you my dick? And the women said, yes, so he did. So what's the problem? Or <clears throat> yes, you got you know, only $100 to get completely naked for James Franco's film, but you signed a contract. So what's the problem, right? So there was already a lot of commentary that mm, maybe they didn't deserve to be canceled um, even though they were for all intents and purposes majorly cancelled and so I think though that kind of sort of underlying ambivalence about certain cancellings of people who hadn't done like hadn't gone beyond the pale um, is part of the groundwork for this larger backlash against cancelling that we you know we saw just a year or two after that because these two men were canceled at the end of 2017 and the beginning of 2018. And it was like around 2019 that people started saying, oh, cancel culture is, you know, becoming really problematic.
0: This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Yeah. So while your book doesn't take a kind of a particular stand as as to the effects of of cancel culture on free speech, you do examine how a certain strand of of cancel discourse has become entwined with national rhetoric and issues surrounding First Amendment rights in the US. Um, Notably, for example, you examine how conservative criticisms of cancel culture proliferated following the murder of George Floyd and protests that took place in response to his death with right-wing pundits describing actions against certain monuments as, quote-unquote, cancellations. Um, So could you explain what function such critiques play within the broader history of American conservatism and histories of white supremacy?
1: Yes, so... In the U.S., these criticisms have come um, primarily from the Republican Party or sort of right-leaning commentators, perhaps, you know, further right than the Republicans. Um, What I think is important to to do in terms of contextualizing those current um, critiques is it's just to think back to where the Republican Party has been in the last, you know, 50 or 60 years. So we know that they've depended on white voter support um, for several decades, you know, since um, mm-hmm. since the civil rights era of the 1960s. But those, you know, the sort of legislative victories of the civil rights era and changes in um broader attitudes towards race and inequality meant that for the most part, it became no longer acceptable to openly (laughs) embrace, ideologies of white nationalism or white supremacy. That doesn't mean that um, racism and sort of uh, efforts to appeal to white voters went away. But uh, as I talk about in the book, Um, Michael Omi and Howard Winant have argued that you see this, what they call re-articulation of whiteness in US politics. So instead of, you know, saying "Mm, we can't have black people in our neighborhoods, you can talk about the need for law and order. Instead of saying those people are just having too many children, you can talk about family values, right? So this is how whiteness and white grievance politics gets rearticulated in the sort of post-civil rights era. And what I argue um, in this chapter about, you know, cancel culture and U.S. conservatism and nationalism is that these cancel discourses with Republicans <clears throat> criticizing cancel culture as, like, left-wing excesses against them specifically, against Republicans or right-wing um um expression specifically that this is also a newer form of the rearticulation of whiteness in um in contemporary American political discourse. And, and so you mentioned you know the George Floyd protests. Part of what happened during those protests were, you know, we saw footage of this uh, protesters targeting particular statues of historical figures who had engaged in racially oppressive practices. Um, And as you note, many conservative commentators was like, this is like cancel culture gone wild. This is them trying to cancel um, American identity. And so there was a very explicit um, association between these kinds of actions, associations made by the critics, the conservative critics, um, between, you know, pointing out the problematic history of white supremacy in the U.S. um, and uh, the fundamental, you know, uh, Americanness of what Republicans say this nation should be.
0: Yeah, so kind of shifting on to your final chapter now, um, you examine cancel cultures in mainland China and how they operate as forms of digital nationalism within the country's online ecology. Um, I was actually unfamiliar with the detail of the cases you examined, so I found this particularly enlightening. Um an enlightening part of the book in terms of how cancel practices may operate in different ways across different national contexts. The, um, so, the first cases you study involve the cancellation of fas- fashion brands for very different reasons, um, including Dolce and Gabbana for an offensive ad campaign, um, and a range of popular apparel brands for breaking ties with cotton producers in Xinjiang. Um, Could you start by briefly introducing these cases to the audience and what they reveal about how council actions can take on nationalist dimensions in the PRC?
1: Yes. Um, I also found these cases really interesting, um, partly because, you know, I'm ethnically Chinese. And so there's a part of me that... And I have, you know, some knowledge of the history of um, China's, you know, what they have called century of humiliation. Um, So anyone vaguely familiar with 19th century history will know that even though China wasn't fully um, colonized, it lost a number of military victories to European powers and had to open up these foreign concession areas. It wasn't until 1949 when the Chinese Communist Party established the People's Republic, that um, the Chinese, the official sort of account is that that's when the century of humiliation was over. So this kind of um, uh, view of Europeans as both um, China's past humiliators and oppressors on the one hand, combined with uh, a, um an a, attraction <clears throat> to European and American and Western brands. Um, <laughs> you know, as you might imagine, has certain tensions given that history. Um, and so with Dolce and Gobana, those, you know, they were they were promoting a show, a fashion show that they had planned um, to occur in Shanghai in at the end of 2018. These ads It's like, you didn't have anyone to tell you these. This was a terrible idea. But yeah, these ads were, I think most people would say they were at best um, not funny. They were supposed to be funny because they showed this Chinese woman trying to eat Italian food with chopsticks, but failing. And then like the voiceover was like very condescending. And then the Instagram account of Stefano Gabbana was involved in, and, and he says he was hacked, but there were these messages with someone who had contacted them saying, these videos are terrible. And he, it was even worse. Like those um, those messages were definitely offensive, you know, using poop emojis and language to, to insult China. Okay, so <clears throat> what happened? A predictable series of events, like Dolce & Gabbana got canceled on social media. Um, lots of hashtags that were about this got huge numbers of views, like hundreds of millions of views, You know, tens or hundreds of thousands of retweets. Um, the show, the fashion show got canceled. A bunch of celebrities withdrew and said, you know, <clears throat> criticized Dolce & Gabbana, um, e-commerce platforms stop selling Dolce & Gabbana products, right? So this kind of like combined, like social media and offline consequences um, happened to, to Dolce & Gabbana. I think <clears throat> what's interesting is that, you know, we can sort of say, did it, were the videos so bad that they deserved, you know, did Dolce & Gurbana really deserve to be so thoroughly cancelled in China? But we could be like, yeah, but you really should have done a better job, right? We understand that. And if we contrast that to uh, the other case study I talked about that involved apparel brands, which is the Xinjiang cotton cancelling Um Xinjiang is this autonomous region in China. It has an ethnically minority ethnic minority population, the Uyghurs, um, and you know, like in other parts of China, um, they've been subject to very stringent uh, control by the central government. Um, the central government has implemented various policies that external observers have. Um, characterized as widespread human rights abuses including forced labor Um, and so one thing that is relevant here is that there are claims that the cotton that is produced in Xinjiang, Xinjiang is this major producer of, of cotton, that some of that cotton is produced by people who have been forced to to work in the cotton fields. So a number of Brands, starting in 2019, started saying, we're not going to use Xinjiang cotton. But nothing really happened until 2021 in March when the EU, the UK, the US and Canada coordinated a statement um, announcing sanctions against certain Chinese um, officials and companies in Xinjiang. And then suddenly... It was a huge thing. What it seems, what seems to have happened is that the Dolce & Gabbana cancelling seemed very bottom up. Like it was, really was consumer led. The Xinjiang cotton cancelling seemed like there was a lot of official involvement right from the start. Like the earliest um, posts on social media, Chinese social media right, were by the China Youth League and the people's daily newspapers, criticising H&M, which was one of the companies, not the earliest company to do this, but for some reason the one that sort of got slammed first, criticising H&M for its we're not going to use Xinjiang Cotton policy. Um, But then it was followed by a lot of other social media posts and the same kind of cancelling actions, right, like people's... Saying burning their you know Adidas um, sneakers and posting the video online, um, and Chinese celebrities publicly cutting their endorsement ties to these brands and and criticizing, in nationalist terms, what had happened, saying you know you must respect China, you must not insult the Chinese people. Um, <clears throat> so those two cases were both sort of. Um, Nationalist, but in one case, we could say, well, it's you could argue that it was a Western company that did wrong (laughs) to the Chinese people in some ways. But in the Xinjiang cotton case, it was about um, defending the CCP's policies and presentation of what it's doing in Xinjiang in a way that is at odds with what most of the rest of the world says that the CCP is doing there. And which some people have called genocide. So it's not just, you know, something mm. minor. Mm.
0: Yeah, that's a really great overview. Thank you. Um, so I think we've we've covered quite a decent chunk of your book's kind of content now. Um, so, you know, I'd encourage people to pick it up and find out more. Um, so then as a final note on the book, could you tell us a little bit about where you see the scholarship of cancel culture going next and what dimensions of the phenomenon warrant further exploration?
1: Yeah, I was thinking, you know, when I got this question, I was like, this is something that I myself am still, you know, thinking through. But I think one thing that really begs more attention is um, the globalization or the globalizing of cancel discourse. So, I mentioned one example in the conclusion chapter in Italy um, where conservatives had been trying to rename a park back to Mussolini Park, um, not after Benito Mussolini, but after his brother. But still, it would have the name of this Italian dictator. Um, And they framed opposition to that renaming as left-wing cancel culture. And a lot of the conservative newspapers referred specifically to the George Floyd protests and um, the sort of attacks on statues of, you know, great men of the past in the U.S. context. More recently, you know, we've had Russia's president, Putin, criticize cancel culture. Um, Once a number of domains like the arts and sports and commerce um, began banning or proposed banning Russians from participating in global events. Or once, um, yeah, like companies began withdrawing from doing business in um, Russia. This is, you know, in the wake of the war in Ukraine. Um, And so in, um, in the chapter on US conservatism and cancel culture, I talk about, you know, the move from the conservatives accusing the whole of the left of cancel culture that supposedly is trying to cancel um, conservatives. But at this global level, you have Putin accusing the whole of the West of trying to cancel Russia, right? So it's at this different scale. Um, But I think some of the same questions apply, right? We can still ask... um, Who is being accused of doing the cancelling? What actually are the cancel practices? And what are the power dynamics that are at play here? Um, Particularly in a situation of war um, where everyone is trying to sort of establish their version of the truth.
0: Yeah, it's great, yeah. Um, Certainly it's a sort of malleable, definitely a shifting phenomenon that we're seeing. so I think that kind of ties up our discussion quite nicely. So um, my final question is, what are you working on now? And do you have any exciting projects on the horizon?
1: <laughs> um, yeah, well, <clears throat> one area I've been looking at recently, um, uh, boys love television series in China. Um, I, <clears throat> I published one article with my co-author Xiaoming Li about a series called Guardian um, a couple of years ago uh, in television and new media, and we're working on another article that I hope is coming out soon. Um, this is a topic that also has several interesting angles to do with fandoms, um, media, you know state regulation of media content, um, and the importance of popular media to you know constructions of identity like Chinese identity. Um, And I said I had been working on a different book manuscript when I started the Cancel Culture book. So I'm going back to that. Um, It's called Mainstreaming Gays, G-A-Y-S, but with like, you know, a pun on gays, G-A-Z-E. So this is an expansion of my dissertation research, um, looking at a period in the 2010s um, when queer fan cultures, Um, independent queer media and commercial television television networks intersected in um, unprecedented ways. Um, So it also discusses fandom and digital culture and popular media with a critical media lens. And that, I hope, will be out next year.
0: Great. Well, I uh, look forward to reading it. Um, so many thanks for your time, Eve. Um, and yeah, hope to have you on the NBN again at some point. Maybe we can discuss your, your future book.
1: <laughs> that would be great. Thank you so much.